Hi, this is the Becoming One Church cast. This is the All Saved episode, so let's just jump right into it. The title means exactly what you might think it would mean that the Becoming One Church says there is universal salvation, but you know who else clearly says that? God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-4, through 4, the Bible says, God desires that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God desires that all people should be saved. And in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 10 through 11, we find, Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. So in 1 Timothy, we hear that God desires that all should be saved. And then in Isaiah chapter 46, we hear God say that if he purposes it, it will come to pass and that he will do his will. So who is going to stand in the way of God's will? And we'll come back to these verses later. But if that quote from God intrigued you and you're not running for the hills at the idea of universal salvation now, I'd love for you to stick around because I'm excited to talk about the scriptural and doctrinal support for this idea. To say that the idea that everyone is saved, universal salvation, is electrically charged might be the understatement of the year. People seem to have a need for hell. But what I'm saying right now is the Bible says there's no hell. <laughs> now, I know you're saying, oh, yes, it does. It says that very clearly. Well, no, it doesn't. And we're going to go through why it doesn't. I'm going to go through what traditional Christianity looks like today as far as the idea of hell and if everyone can be saved. And then I'm going to talk about doctrinal proof, theology, theological proof straight from the Bible itself. And that's going to be in six steps. I'm going to talk about mistranslation. There's a glaringly awful mistranslation that's just been passed around in everything. And there are some versions that have the correct translation, but I'm here to tell you what that is and how it changes everything. And also, number two is the verses in the Bible that say all will be saved because there are so many and we're not even going to go through all of them. Three, we're going to talk about the concept of three measures or three ranks of salvation, which is very clearly stated in the Bible. Four, we're going to talk about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and what can make that parable come alive in terms of universal salvation. Five, we're going to talk about unpardon unpardonable sin. Is there sin that exists for which no one can be pardoned? Doesn't it say there is? Oh, oh no, 
<laughs> Six, love. What is the power of love? And what does that mean for universal salvation? So again, the doctrinal proof we're going to go over today in this church cast are one, mistranslation, two, verses that all will be saved in the Bible, three, the three measures or the three ranks of salvation, four, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, five, unpardonable sin, and six, love. Uh, we're going to start with what Christianity has been telling you nowadays and for the last, oh, <laughs> quite some time now, as the institutions took a hold of the teachings of Christ. As man shaped and formed the teachings of Christ to say something twisted that turns a lot of people away from Christianity now and isn't even true. So let's get electrically charged and jump into this issue. So what do what does Christianity look like today on this issue? <laughs> well, um, your teachers and your pastors and your institutions have probably been pretty clear about the idea of there being a hell. In fact, maybe that's why you're a Christian, which if that is the reason you're a Christian, you might want to examine whether you whether you're really committed to the idea of Jesus and his teachings because that's not why you want to call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus. That's not the core tenet of the Bible. It's not even in it. Whoo, ha ha, what am I saying? So what is what does Christianity look like today? Well, the idea that there's a hell <laughs> makes God weak. If there's a hell and a significant portion of God's creation is going to hell, then we have a weak God. And God is all-powerful. Is he not? Yes, he is. The only way there can be a hell where a bunch of the creation goes and is discarded in is if God is weak. God doesn't have the power to make his creation believe in him, worship him, follow him, love him. Even though God loves him, what kind of a weak God would that be? God is not weak. If your God is weak, your God is not the God. Your God is some kind of image or or a shadow of the real God. We want to find the real God. God is not weak. But your teachers today have God struggling against a surprisingly strong Satan. So today in Christianity, Satan is surprisingly strong. Now I know that we all know that temptation is difficult to resist, right? Who created us? God did. God made us the way we are with our weaknesses and our our problems and our susceptibility to temptation. And in the meaning of life, we went over the meaning of life podcast, the prior podcast, the meaning of life. In that church cast, we went over what we think the meaning of life really is. And that's basically this is school and we're here to learn 
good from evil. Um, and of course, there's all kinds of loose ends and questions laying around there, but we'll get to them because we can tie those up pretty well. But Christianity Today, coming back to the um, idea of a surprisingly strong Satan, Christianity Today gives Satan way too much credit. Satan isn't that strong. God created Satan. Isaiah says that God created evil. Um, we, we reconcile that with the idea of God being love. Um, we have some doctrinal uh, kind of answer for that. But for now, we're talking about all saved. So, uh, Christianity today, Satan's pretty strong, um, and Satan's not strong. He's not. And then also Christianity today, in, in today's Christianity, God doesn't get his will. God doesn't get his will. Well, that's not how it really works. I mean, when you pray, you're supposed to ask for things if it's according to God's will. God gets his will, God gets his way, and God isn't um, struggling against evil and having his will thwarted. God gets his will, and his will is not, for most of his creation, to go into a trash heap of hell. No one is discarded. In today's Christianity, God made a creation that is mostly trash to be discarded and burned up. The vast majority of creation today, according to what you hear at your typical sermon, if you look under the surface or if you go to whenever your pastor gives his hellfire and brimstone sermon, the vast majority of the creation is going to be banished to hell and that's why you're sitting in church not because of love not because you love god and you love the truth and you've grown as a person well maybe that's why but a lot of the time part of the reason you're there is insurance you want to make sure you don't go to hell and somebody somewhere told you that's what you're supposed to do if you're gonna if you're gonna stay out of hell well, does that make you a good person if the reason you're in church is because you're scared of the devil? Well, you might be a good person, but you shouldn't be in church for that reason. Um, you just shouldn't. In Christianity today, also, the army of God fails most of humanity. You have Jesus, you have the saints, you have the angels, and in this version of Christianity, they only overcome for such a small portion of humanity that they basically fail everyone else. Well, no, that's not how it works. The army of God is triumphant. The angels and the saints and the Christ are triumphant. But that's not what you hear in church today. Today in church, you might also hear that the meaning of life is to pick a side, to stay out of hell. 
And if you don't pick the right side, well, you're just done. There's no do-overs. You got to get everything right right now before you pass away. And the whole reason you're here is to just pick the right side, to separate the wheat from the chaff, get on the right side of God, get on the good side, and then you'll be saved and everything else and everyone else goes in the trash heap. Well, in the prior podcast, we touched on why the meaning of life is actually to learn about good and evil, to learn how to appreciate what is good and that it's a spiritual creation and that if we were created in paradise, we would not be happy. You can't be happy if all you've ever known is paradise. Think about it. The meaning of life isn't to pick one side or the other. The meaning of life is much different from that. And it's to become spiritually created. And it's not to pick sides. It's better than that. It's so much better than that. And Christianity today, along with um, their surprisingly strong Satan, is the idea that the problem of evil can't be solved, and we just don't really know what's going on here. Um, there's no logical explanation for it, but Satan's there and he's pretty strong. Well, um, no. And we'll come back to the problem of evil, most likely, more fully in another church cast at some time in the future because it deserves its own episode. Um, but essentially, this is a spiritual creation. The name of God is the becoming one. God is going through a transformative process too. There's timing involved. And someday God will be all in all again. So when traditional Christianity looks at the problem of evil as something that just can't be solved, an impossible dilemma, we don't. We don't look at it that way at all. Um, traditional Christianity today, in this version, in their version, evil wins most souls. Evil wins most souls. This version is an almost hopeless version where people with circumstance and temptation and most people fall by the wayside and well that's not actually what's being said in the doctrine if you just dig a little bit deeper it's right there in plain sight it's not evil that wins it's good it's love and we're here to say that the idea that most of humanity goes to some hideous torture pit hell is just not what Christianity is saying in the Bible. If you read it right, it's not what's being said at all. The institutions and the men who've taken the teachings there and molded them have come up with this idea that just seems like it can't be undone that we're just so used to hearing we're so used to hearing about the strong tempter and the great difficulty of obtaining grace and winning god's favor i mean they might tell you all you have to do is ask for it and get it but they'll also tell you most people won't ask for it most people won't get it well no everyone gets it and 
finally, well, actually not finally, but um, next, <laughs> Christianity Today says God is love, but he burns people up forever while they're still alive, but forever alive in hell. Uh, no, no, that doesn't even make sense. And we're going to show you why it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. That's ridiculous. And that's why some people probably don't want to go to church because they know that doesn't make any sense. Stop teaching that. That's not right. God is love. And we're here to tell you how and why. Um, also in Christianity Today, I mean, everyone instinctively knows God could have made us any way that he wanted to. But God made us flawed. He made us likely to fail, to lose out, to be unable to recognize or receive His grace. His grace. Um, God made us with all our frailties and all of our temptations, and He made us that way. And how is that fair? If he also sends most of us to hell, well, God's fair. So you gotta question the premise of this massive hell. And when you start to question it with doctrine, it all comes tumbling down. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because God is love. Um, Christianity today also gives circumstance too much influence over souls. What if you never even hear the gospel? What if you were born before the gospel? What, what if your circumstance was so horrible and so dark and such awful things happened to you that you can't even contemplate the idea of a loving or merciful God? Um, and if you're sitting in a church that talks about a God who is all about hellfire and brimstone, you actually might want to ask if that's you. But in, in dark circumstances, people, people are harmed and damaged. And Christianity today just kind of leaves those people, um they're left out. In traditional Christianity, it's entirely possible that the circumstances of your life can override your ability to accept salvation as they see it, um, can keep you from grace because you're so hurt you can't even listen or you never heard in the first place. You never even got the opportunity to listen. Well, that can't be the right version of the story. That can't be the right version of the story. Also, in traditional Christianity, something that always amused me about it was I kind of felt like you save yourself. Everyone talks about um, that Jesus saves you, but if you really look at what people are saying, they're saying that you save yourself. Uh, when I was in college and I was going to a Christian college youth group, I had a very memorable to me argument with one of the guys in the church group. I asked him if the only difference between people who get grace and don't get grace is that they asked then how are you saying that 
God gave it because the God is willing to give it to anyone who asks. But the deciding factor of whether you're saved in traditional Christianity is that you asked. You were just smart enough, wise enough. You got it. Your circumstances were such that you heard it and your heart was open enough and you asked. So God's giving it, Jesus is giving it to whoever is giving salvation to whoever shall receive Jesus and ask. But if God gives it to anyone who asks, the deciding factor is that you asked and you saved yourself. This is what I argued traditional Christianity was saying when I was around 18, 19 with some guy in my church youth group. Well, a church youth group I went to um, to meet people. And he, he basically kind of just fell silent. He went speechless, and you could tell he was very frustrated, and he left because he knew I was right, or at least at the time, he felt like it was right. Maybe he went back, and he found like some answers, but yeah, if you think about it, aren't you saving yourself? And you don't save yourself. Grace is a gift. You don't get it for yourself, so Traditional Christianity today is saying the deciding factor is you asked, you received, you you went to receive, you were open enough to receive. Well, I don't know what's the deciding factor there. If grace is a gift, doesn't it just fall like manna from heaven? Doesn't it? It does. That's how it works. That's how things work. Traditional Christianity today. Um, you have to ask yourself, um, where does this hell idea come from? Well, a lot of people need others to go to hell to be happy. They need that to be in the cards in the future. They want that. They want their enemies to go to hell. Do they really love their enemies? I mean, if the idea that your enemies could receive grace, that your worst enemies and I know this is difficult because some people have had really horrible, unspeakable, dark things happen to them at the hands of their enemies. Because there is evil, and evil is real, and evil is dark. And if you've had those things happen to you, yeah, maybe you do want those who've hurt you and your enemies to go to hell. But the ultimate aim is to love your enemies and love conquers all love conquers everything so you shouldn't need somebody to go to hell what you should need is for that person to realize the wrongs that they have done and to have a new mind change their mind, repent, really feel what they have done is wrong and weep and beg for forgiveness. Because if your enemy doesn't change their mind, they still, what, what kind of a victory is that? The greatest victory is that they should change their mind. That's what you should want. That's what all Christians, all people who follow the way of Jesus should want. 
So anyway, um, oh, and, and one final thing about Christianity, tr traditional Christianity. And by that I mean institutional approved trademark Christianity. Trademark, stamped, approved, traditional, what you've heard from all the institutions that you, if you go to church, that you're sending money to and you're supporting and, um, and really everyone because that's just what we've all been taught. Um, that's traditional Christianity. So one more thing is, um, do you need the idea of hell to be good? Is that what you need? I mean, question your own commitment if that is what you need. You should want to be a good person because you are a good person. Because you want to know the truth and not because you need to be afraid of hell. Does this mean we can just do whatever we want? If everyone's saved, can we just do whatever we want? No. No, because... The law of sin is still in place, and you'll just make a mess for yourself. The wicked is caught in their own trap. So if you sin, inevitably you will pay for that in some way, some very dark ways. So you don't want to seek evil, but you should just know that you should after you've been in this world a little while you should start to realize what pain sin can bring upon you and you shouldn't need someone to tell you go to hell if you sin to keep you from doing it sin is a lot of trouble so don't commit it because you don't want to commit it not because you're trying to stay out of hell. That's not the right reason. So anyway, um, that's trademark registered Christianity. What it's telling people and teaching people. And you don't have to uh, be a rocket scientist to know why there's struggles today to fill the pews. Um, why some people are turned away from Christianity because ultimately the message is actually kind of dark. The message of hell, the message of the um, the loss and the condemnation of most of everyone who's ever lived is not a hopeful message. Now some people think that... Um, think that the idea that um, there's no hell is is the non-hopeful message because, because they want to be the ones who save themselves. They want to know that they can get in heaven just by saying they want to or truly wanting to with their hearts and asking Jesus. They want to make sure they're in the right group right now. I remember I talked with somebody um, almost had to be 20 years ago now when I was in college about um, I talked to her about the idea of all saved and 
You know, we, we didn't talk long about it because um, we were friends and, you know, you don't talk religion with your friends usually, especially if you think different things. But we kind of went into it a little bit and um, I remember her looking at me when I was talking about the idea of universal salvation and she was holding on to the idea of hell of course. And she looked at me and said, well, I think there's hope. (laughs) And it just struck me as so funny because she was telling me that it's hope. It's a hopeful message that most of humanity will go to hell because she can make sure she was better than other people. And the idea of universal salvation to her was a message without hope. And that just struck me as kind of um, a great example of the traditional Christian theology that's being taught nowadays. So now that I've ranted on popular Christian theology, um, perhaps the only theology you've ever heard Uh, as the only Christian theology you've ever heard. Let's get to our doctrinal proof on all saved. So we'll go through six segments of it. Um, Like I said, mistranslation, verses that all will be saved, three measures or three ranks, Uh, four, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, five, unpardonable sin question mark six love so to start with um, mistranslation in the Bible um, I'm sure you can recall verses about people being um, sent to hell forever um, damned forever cursed forever but Um, that's actually not what the Bible was saying. Those scriptures have been mistranslated. Those scriptures have been mistranslated. In the Bible, words that mean aeonian or age or age-lasting in the original languages were mistranslated into everlasting. So in the Bible, words that mean aeonian or age or age-lasting in the original languages were mistranslated into everlasting. And this results in um, great confusion and wrong doctrines. Um, Of course, when you talk about the kingdom of God, that's an age too, but it's an age without end. Um, when we're saying age lasting in a lot of the Bible, we're not talking about ages that don't end. The kingdom of God has no end. Heaven has no end. Um, but if you take the correct translation and you stop translating some of these verses as forever and everlasting, all of a sudden, things become a whole lot clearer. So you have to realize that 
for whatever reason, most of the translations of the Bible are just plain wrong on that point. Um, so there's the first scriptural, doctrinal, theological proof. There so many of these verses that talk about um, forever um, and pertains in uh, pertaining to like bad things are just talking about foreign age. They're saying age lasting. And when you read them correctly, the whole meaning can change. And there are, there are, we're not the only ones who have noted this. There are translations of the Bible, um, besides the Becoming One Church's Bible translation, that have uh, age lasting, Aeonian. And those would be correct on that point. As far as um, the Becoming One Church goes. Um, so, two. One was mistranslation. That's the first scriptural proof of um, the word Aeonian into everlasting. Two. So now, verses in the Bible that say that everyone will be saved. In Psalm 145, 9 through 10, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall give thanks to thee, O Lord. So that's literally saying that all God's works will thank him. Um, Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone presses into it. So there's the Bible literally saying that everyone presses into the kingdom of God. Everyone goes into the kingdom of God. And then Romans eleven twenty six says that all Israel shall be saved. Um, well, God is not a respecter of persons, as we learn in Deuteronomy ten seventeen, Job chapter thirty four verse nineteen, Acts chapter ten verse thirty four, Ephesians chapter six verse nine, and Romans chapter two verse eleven. God is not a respecter of persons. So if He saves all of Israel, He will save everyone. He will save all of the world. Those who are Israeli Israelites in the, the the biblical term of saving all of Israel, and then everyone else, because God is not a respecter of persons. And um, Psalm 86, all people whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Here's the psalm saying that everyone is going to glorify God's name and worship him. And then in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, Paul is speaking to real Christians and telling them that they are Christians because they have obtained mercy. And then he says, For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So when everyone else obtains the mercy that God wants to have on them, they will also obtain salvation because Christians obtain their salvation via mercy. And... Then in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Aha! You say, see, there are lost people. Some people are lost. <laughs> well, in Luke nineteen ten, we hear, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus isn't only the Savior of the Christians, but to those from whom the gospel has been hidden from the lost. If God is if Jesus has come to seek and save that which was lost, do you think he won't be successful? And 
in 1 John 4.14, we hear, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And the word world here is used to mean those of the world of worldly ways. Um, as we can see when we look at 1 John uh, chapter 2, 15 through 16. Jesus Christ was sent to save the whole world, not just Christians. And in Isaiah 29, 24, They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. I think that's pretty clear. Those that erred will come to understanding. And then Isaiah 45, 23. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. So if every knee is bowing and every tongue shall swear, in the highest sense this means that everyone is worshiping God, everyone is agreeing with God. And then if you look at Romans uh, 14, 11, it says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And, and the word confess here comes from a Greek word that means to acknowledge, to agree fully. This verse is literally saying all will acknowledge God and agree with God. And uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 through 11 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 through 6 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 1 John 2, 2. And he himself is the forgiveness, propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So Christ died for all, not just Christians. Jesus came to save everyone. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, 3 through 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wishes all to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. And 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that's God's will, that everyone should come to repentance? Well, God gets his will, right? Yes, God's will shall be done. In Isaiah 55 through 11, he makes that very clear. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And in Isaiah, Isaiah 46 verses 10 through 11, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, Say, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. And then we see in First Timothy 
again, let's go back to 1 Timothy, God wishes all to be saved. And in 2 Peter, it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, in Isaiah, God makes fairly clear that when he wants something, he gets it. And if he purposes something, he does it. And then if his word goes out from his mouth, it doesn't return to him void. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So from that you can see that God's will is for everyone to be saved, and there are plenty of verses that talk about everyone being saved and God having every knee bow to him and worship him and everyone agree with him. It literally says that everyone will confess to God or agree with God in the true meaning of the Greek word. So there you have it. It's just some of the verses in the Bible that talk about universal salvation. Um, so scriptural doctrinal, doctrinal proof. So the three measures or the three ranks of salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 22 through 24 say, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own rank or order. The first fruit, Christ, then those that are of Christ at his coming, then the end, when he gives up the kingdom to him who is God and Father, when he supersedes all rule and all authority and all power. So that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when we talk about all power, if you think about it, that also means Satan's power. So those that were led astray or influenced by Satan should be set free as well, rather than still be forever um, banished to some kind of hell because Satan still has some kind of sway. Uh, if God the Father supersedes all authority, that should also mean the sway and the persuasive power of Satan. And then we have Matthew uh, 13.33. It says, Another parable spoke he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto Levin, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was Levin. Again, another parable he spoke unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. So this also points to three measures or three steps or three ranks in salvation, uh, three different times of salvation. And it talks about the whole being leavened. Just like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talked about everyone dying in, in Adam and everyone being made alive through Christ, but each in their own rank, each in their own order. Further, um, Mark 4.28 says, For the earth brings forth fruit of herself, first the blade, which is Christ, then the ear, Christians, and we're talking about corn, so then the ear, Christians, and then after that, the full corn in the ear. So everyone else, the whole leavened. Um, Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen, the festivals, um, the festivals symbolize also the orders of salvation. So De Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen, 
three times in a year shall your your males appear before the Lord your God in the place which he shall choose in the feast of unleavened bread and in the feast of weeks and in the feast of tabernacles and um, the becoming one church says that those symbolize the three different measures or, or ranks of salvation and if you go back to Matthew thirteen thirteen, um, it's this beautiful parable about a woman, um, and she's baking bread, and the kingdom of heaven is is like the leaven which helps to to bake the bread, and a woman takes it and hides it in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. That beautiful loaf of bread is done, the oven timer has gone off, and the spiritual creation is done, and everybody is an equal brother and sister, sons and daughters of God, because um, the spiritual creation is done. And the Becoming One Church looks at um, the kingdom of heaven, and, um, and they say that, we say that this is right now, what we're going through right now is the spiritual creation. So everyone presses into the kingdom of heaven eventually, as the Bible says. Now, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. People use this parable to try to prove that there's a hell, but we're going to show you a much different meaning for this parable. In the parable, Lazarus the beggar dies and is carried by angels up to Abraham. A rich man dies and he his eyes look up and see this and he's been tormented basically in a pit of hell in the grave. And people say, well, there you go. That's the proof for hell. But what we're saying is if you transpose Satan for the rich man in this parable, the story comes even more alive. And the higher meaning is revealed. Where do we get the idea that the rich man could be Satan? Well, if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, it says, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not God. And then further on into verse 13, says, you have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, unquote. Now, the prince of Tyrus obviously wasn't in the garden of Eden, so this must symbolize something. And further, the precious stones mentioned in verse 13 are used throughout the Bible to describe spiritual beings. Look at Isaiah 54, uh, verses 11 and 12, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, man is not a spirit. Man, uh, humans have spirits in them, but they're not a spiritual being. And this use of the language of the precious stones points to the prince of Tyrus actually being a spiritual being. And further, verse 14 in, in chapter 28 of Ezekiel says, quote, You are the anointed cherub that covers. Um, so this is more... When, when you look at those together, who's in the Garden of Eden, um, an anointed cherub, and also a spiritual being, well, that's Satan. Well, how, how do we identify Satan as the rich man? Well, in Ezekiel 28, uh, verse 5, it says, By your great wisdom, 
And by your traffic, have you increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches? And in verse 16, by the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of you with violence. And um, also 17 and 18, I will cast you to the ground by the iniquity of your traffic. Therefore, will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you. It shall devour you. It talks about riches in connection with this spiritual being. This is Satan, and Satan is a rich man. So transpose this parable, transpose in this parable Satan for the rich man, and all of a sudden you see it's Satan who's being tormented. Um, and in in the Bible, uh, evil spirits speak to Jesus and say, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Or in James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. So this points to a judgment day for Satan. And uh, the Becoming One Church looks at um, the spiritual creation as being six, six days and then there's a day of rest, a Sabbath day. And during the Sabbath, Satan is bound up and uh, tortured. And how is Satan tortured? Well, Satan likes to go forth throughout the earth and um, tempt people and, and cause mischief and havoc and evil. And Satan not being able to do that is torture for Satan. Um, and this thousand year period is also the thousand year time is also the quote unquote reward for Christians. They become a, a kingdom of priests and that is the, the second order of salvation. So there's this thousand year period of peace where Satan is bound up. Um, and of course there's there's a lot more to this, but that's probably another church cast um that's that's for a, a podcast in the future but basically if you can see that the rich man in this parable is satan and that satan eventually gets tortured by god by being kept from invading humanity's minds and tempting us and wreaking havoc so that we have this beautiful sabbath of peace then you can see this isn't necessarily in fact it isn't a proof for hell at all so you can stop looking to the parable of lazarus and the rich man and saying see look this is proof for hell it clearly shows hell because actually the higher meaning is it shows that satan will eventually be bound up i've um, finally, um, or rather next to last, unpardonable sin. Does the Bible speak of unpardonable sin? When it says in Mark uh, chapter 3 verses 28 to 30, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Well, here we go back to the first uh, scriptural proof mistranslation. It, the translation shouldn't say everlasting, but age-lasting. There are no unpardonable sins. Mistranslation is obscuring the meaning of the passage because they're not correctly translating the words to Aeonian, to age-lasting, to foreign age. 
And then finally, love, the scriptural proof of love. Um, how much does the spirit of love forgive? God is love, and the spirit of love is the spirit of forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 22. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto you until seven times, but seventy times seven. Proverbs ten twelve. But love covers all sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. It covers all, it believes all, it hopes all, it endures all. How much does the Christ love forgive? John six fifty one, And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He gave his life for the world. Um... Hebrews 10, 12, But this one, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, and then 1 John 2, 2, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It sounds like love forgives an awful lot. Um, the all-powerful God will be all in all. See 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Because God's spirit of love will fill the whole universe at the true end or at the true fullness of the ages. See Jeremiah 23, 24. Can any man, can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? The truest sense of that scripture, since God is love, is that love will fill the whole universe. So in the end, there's love. Um, so those were six scriptural proofs for universal salvation. So, um, if this was intriguing to you, again, um, we have a website, and these, uh, the few things we were able to go over in this hour are not the only scriptural proofs that um, the Becoming One Church gathered and wrote about. Um, they're really just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other examples, even for these six um, doctrinal proofs. And if you go to www.becomingone.org, um, go to the book section to the New Mind, um, a section about the New Mind book, you'll see that you can read the um, All Saved paper, New Mind 13, and the New Mind 14 paper, Does All Mean All?, for free on the internet so go check it out and in the meantime i hope that this was able to give you some new ideas to play with and uh, i hope you listen to these probably new ideas in the spirit of love <laughs>